you have your Bibles today and would like to follow along uh, with the reading of our text, you may turn to 2 Kings 11, 17. Second Kings eleven seventeen. There we read. And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people, that they should be the Lord's people, between the king also and the people. As we continue our defense of national covenanting from the scripture, more questions need to be answered. Who are the parties in a national covenant? God and the nation, or the rulers and the people within the nation? If the parties in a national covenant are the rulers and the people within the nation, as opposed to God and the nation, is such a national covenant less binding upon posterity than one between God and the nation? A similar question, but slightly nuanced from the previous question, is this one. Is a covenant that a nation initiates with God essentially different in its nature or perpetual obligation to posterity than a covenant that God himself directly initiates with a nation. Does God own a covenant as his covenant only when he directly initiates it, or does God also own a covenant as his covenant even when he does not directly initiate it, but the nation initiates it? This set of questions focus upon a particular aspect of national covenants between God and man. And that particular aspect being this. Who initiated the covenant? God or man? Now, why is a consideration of such questions so important? Why would I spend time discussing these questions? Maybe these would not be questions that even come to your own mind. Well, it's because various objections to national covenanting, and particularly objections to the perpetual obligation of the solemn league and covenant, arise which must be answered from a study of God's holy word. How can we rest in confidence that our convictions on national covenanting and the solemn league and covenant are biblical if we cannot respond to the various objections that arise? And dear ones, quite honestly, it is making man the Lord over the conscience if we go around saying to people that they are bound by a covenant but we have no biblical warrant or grounds for making such an assertion. Such an assertion without biblical warrant, I submit to you, is idolatry. 
It is taking God's divine authority away from him, for God alone is the Lord of the conscience. So we must seek by God's grace not to simply assert anything concerning national covenanting that we cannot defend from the scripture. It may be a grievous sin, dear ones, to be a covenant breaker, which violates and breaks the third commandment, but let us never forget it is also a grievous sin to be an idolater by binding the consciences of people to a covenant that God does not hold them bound to keep, which violates the first commandment. Let us then continue today with faith in Christ to earnestly seek the answers from God's word to the objections and questions that arise about national covenanting and particularly the solemn league and covenant. First main point this Lord's Day is this. The parties in a national covenant, whether God and the nation or whether the rulers and the people do not determine the binding obligation of a covenant. In other words, whether it is God and the nation, or whether it is the rulers and the people, in either case, regardless of the parties involved, it is not that alone, it is not that that determines whether a covenant is binding or not. We've already considered what makes a covenant binding. That is, that it must be lawful and according to the word of God. It must be a covenant that is made, that is that uh, binds someone to, or binds a nation to, certain obligations, certain duties that bind them to the Lord or to their rulers, or the rulers to their people. In 2 Kings 11, verse 17, which is our text for this Lord's Day, we note in the uh, beginning of the chapter, 2 Kings chapter 11, we see there that Athaliah, who had tyrannically assumed the rule over Judah by murdering all of her royal grandsons, or so she thought, was removed from rule by Jehoiada, the high priest. The Lord had preserved one of her royal grandsons from being slaughtered. His name was Joash, and he was secretly hidden from the wicked hand of Athaliah for six years. When Joash was seven years old, Jehoiada, the high priest, secretly rallied the captains of Judah and the Levites around Joash, bound them by a covenant, and then proceeded to execute the murderous usurper, Athaliah. Now, that that wicked tyrant, Athaliah, had been removed from rule, Jehoiada moved the nation of Judah 
to engage themselves in a national covenant as we see in 2 Kings 11.17. Let us read once again 2 Kings 11.17. And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people. Between the king also and the people. Observe that one aspect of this national covenant was made directly between God and the nation of Judah when it says, And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people. In other words, this aspect of the national covenant was religious in nature. God was one party. And the nation of Judah, both king and people, together comprised the other party. The substance of this religious aspect of the national covenant was that they would be God's people. Judah here was renewing the original national covenant made at Mount Sinai to be God's people after having wickedly fallen away. However, there is another aspect to this covenant, this national covenant, and that is that it was distinctly a covenant made as well between the young king Joash and the nation of Judah, when it says, between the king also and the people. So there are two aspects to this covenant. The word also indicates that this was a separate and distinct aspect of the national covenant that was made. This aspect of the national covenant was civil in nature. The king being one party and the people of Judah being the other party. Now interestingly, this is precisely the form that the Solemn League and Covenant takes as well as we shall see in a future sermon. For it was a national covenant concerning religious duties sworn to God with uplifted hands, but it was also a national league concerning civil duties between the king and the kingdoms of England, Ireland, and Scotland. Now, the question comes to the forefront. Was the religious aspect of this national covenant that Jehoiada engaged the the people in, was the religious aspect of this national covenant sworn directly to God more binding because it was made directly with God than the civil aspect of this covenant that was sworn between the king and the people. Did God not hear the civil aspect of this covenant made between the king and the people of Judah as much as he heard the religious aspect of the covenant made directly with him? Was the king at liberty to break his covenant with the people simply because God was not a party to it, which would then release the people if the king did not keep it? 
people could likewise not keep it or vice versa? Were not children who were born after this covenant was made equally bound to obey the religious aspects of this covenant as well as the civil aspects of this covenant being the posterity of those who made it? Could a child of Judah not born at the time that this covenant was made rise up and lawfully say, I'm not bound by this covenant to be a part of God's people because I did not personally make it? Or could the same child rise up and lawfully say, I'm not bound by this covenant to be subject to King Joash because I did not personally make it? You see, the point being made here is that whether it was the religious aspect of this national covenant made with God, made directly with God, or whether it was the civil aspect of this national covenant made with the king or the king with the people, which involved perhaps various uh, circumstantial types of uh, matters, both aspects of this national covenant were equally binding not only upon the original covenanters, but also upon their posterity as well, as to the moral, as to the moral truths, as far as to the moral duties that were contained in it. There are other places to which we may turn as well in order to demonstrate that a national covenant not made directly with God is yet binding and even though God is not a direct party in that covenant, he owns that covenant as his covenant. For example, if you turn with me to Ezekiel 17, Ezekiel chapter 17, (coughs) there we see that King Zedekiah of Judah had entered into a covenant on behalf of himself and his people with King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon not to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar or to seek help from another nation. Zedekiah, however, broke his covenant with Nebuchadnezzar by sending his ambassadors to Egypt to obtain help. Now, although this covenant was not made directly to the Lord, but directly to Nebuchadnezzar, because it was a covenant which invoked God's name, in other words, here was a covenant made with Nebuchadnezzar, wherein Zedekiah took an oath before God and said, as God is my witness, I will keep this covenant with Nebuchadnezzar. Because it was of such a nature, God himself still owns this covenant to be binding and even calls this covenant with a heathen king to be his covenant. And that not only Zedekiah, but Judah as a whole would be judged for breaking God's covenant. Look with me at Ezekiel 17, verses 19 through 21. There we read, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, As I live, 
Surely mine oath that he hath despised, and the he there is Zedekiah, and my covenant that he hath broken, even it will I recompense upon his own head. Notice there, he's, God says, this is my oath and my covenant, even though it was not sworn to him directly to God. He owns it as his own. We continue in verse 20. And I will spread my net upon him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon, and I will plead with him there for his trespass, that he hath trespassed against me. And all his fugitives, with all his bands, shall fall by the sword. That is, all the, the remnants, of the, uh, all of... Uh, those within Judah that would be led into captivity. And they that remain shall be scattered toward all winds. And ye shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it. And again, just to reiterate why this is significant, there are those, again, who, who seek to raise the objection for example, that the solemn league and covenant in various ways is because it was a covenant made between the ruler, the king, and the kingdoms, England, Ireland, and Scotland, for that reason that it is of a different nature and essence and substance and does not have the same perpetual obligation as if it were sworn directly to God. And yet, in Ezekiel 17, a covenant to uh, this national covenant that Zedekiah swore on behalf of himself and his people with Nebuchadnezzar, when that was violated, though with a heathen king, because it owned God as the witness to that particular covenant that was made, that God holds Zedekiah responsible for being a covenant breaker because he broke, God says, my covenant. Though it wasn't directly sworn to God, God owned it and brought judgment upon Zedekiah and upon the people of Israel, or Judah. <clears throat> Likewise, you'll recall in past sermons, we considered the, the national covenant that Israel made with the Gibeonites in, Judges, or in uh, Joshua chapter 9. In that case, you'll recall that the national covenant was not made again directly with God, but was made with a heathen nation, the Gibeonites. And yet about 400 years later, when King Saul persecutes and seeks to destroy the Gibeonites, God brings his judgment upon Israel during the reign of King David in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1-2. through 2. Again, God owns that covenant, that Israel made with the Gibeonites a national covenant even for hundreds of years. And so it is not merely a covenant that is sworn directly 
to God or made with God, that is a perpetual obligation that binds all posterity. But likewise, national covenants that are made with other nations that are solemn, that invoke the name of God as well. We've also noted in a past sermon how binding was the obligation of a brotherly national covenant between Israel and Tyre that's mentioned in Amos 1.9, which alludes to an ancient covenant of peace made between King Solomon and King Hiram of Tyre, of which we read in 1 Kings 5.12. We won't look these passages up because we have dealt with them in the past. I simply bring them up here to further corroborate what uh, is being said at this point. This covenant mentioned in Amos 1.9, called a brotherly covenant, was not made again directly with God, but was made between two kings representing their nations and their national posterity. And yet the Lord poured forth his judgment upon Tyre through Babylon hundreds of years later after the covenant between Solomon and Hiram was made because Tyre turned over refugees of Israel who fled for safety to Tyre. Tyre turned those refugees over to the cruel nation of Edom. They did not honor they did not remember the brotherly covenant of peace. They broke it. Dear ones, there simply is no evidence that a national covenant made between the magistrate and the people or between other nations is any less binding upon those parties engaged than when it is a national covenant made directly with God. Certainly a national covenant made directly with God might be said to be of a greater aggravation if it's made directly with God. But God owns, however, national covenant as his covenant when his name is invoked. This will not help any to escape the binding and perpetual obligation of the solemn league and covenant, even if, hypothetically, it could be shown and proven that the Solemn League and Covenant was not made directly with God, but was merely made with the king and the kingdoms. Even if that were the case, it will not prove the point. It will not make the point that it is less binding, that it is of a, a different essence and nature. Not, it's not perpetually uh, binding upon all posterity. It will not prove that point. And we will consider and show uh, in a subsequent sermon that, in fact, uh, God was one of the parties to the Solemn League and Covenant. Just like the covenant made at the time of Jehoiada, there was an aspect of the Solemn League and Covenant wherein religious duties are sworn directly to God, and there is a civil aspect of the covenant, wherein there are duties and responsibilities sworn to between the king and the people, and the people and the king. And finally, before moving on to the next main point, 
I would simply say that such an, uh, such an objection that would make a covenant made between men that invokes God's name less binding upon those covenanting, less binding upon all posterity than one made directly with God, would in effect be saying that an oath made with man is less binding than a vow made with God. Dear ones, this is, this is to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. Such objections that seek to remove covenanted duties upon such sophistry and unbiblical distinctions between oaths and vows are guilty of perjury and covenant breaking. Beloved, whether the lawful covenant was made directly with God or with man, whether the lawful covenant was a personal covenant, a familial covenant, a business covenant, an ecclesiastical covenant, or a national covenant, or whether that lawful covenant was made by us or by our ancestors, we must know that God will not forget any covenant breaking. God will not forget any covenant breaking. He will indeed forgive our covenant breaking, but we must, we must seek his forgiveness. We must repent of our sin, and we must renew all such lawful covenants that bind us and not drag the name of Christ through the mud by our covenant breaking. The second main point uh, in the sermon this Lord's Day is this. National covenants between God and a nation are equally binding whether they are initiated by God or whether they are initiated by man. And I would have you turn with me to Isaiah 19, verses 18 through 25. And we have looked at this in a previous sermon, but I want to use it in a different way to, than I did previously to make the point here. Isaiah 19, beginning with verse 18 and reading through the end of the chapter, in that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan and swear to the Lord of hosts. One shall be called the city of destruction. In that day shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the, of the land of Egypt and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, where they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors. And he shall send them a Savior and a great one, and he shall deliver them. And the Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation. Yea, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord, and perform it. And the Lord shall smite Egypt. He shall smite and heal it. And they shall return even to the Lord. And he shall be entreated of them and shall heal them. In that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrian shall come into Egypt. And the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptians shall serve 
with the Assyrians. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel mine inheritance. The prophetic context of Isaiah 19 is that of the future millennium, when Christ will reign from his throne in heaven over the nations in such visible glory that he will powerfully draw his ancient people of Israel unto himself in a national covenant to be his people. But he will also draw Gentile nations unto himself in national covenants to be his people as well. Interestingly, God initiated that national covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, which will be renewed by Israel in the millennium. <coughs> However, Gentile nations will initiate national covenants with God to be his people as well. Now, is there any essential difference in the nature or binding obligation between Israel's national covenant with God, wherein God initiated that covenant, and the Gentiles' national covenants with God, wherein they initiate the covenant with God? Well, let us see. Notice in Isaiah 19:18 that Egypt shall, quote, swear to the Lord of hosts, end of quote. Nothing is indicated here that would lead us to believe that God will supernaturally speak from heaven as he did at Mount Sinai in initiating this national covenant with Egypt. And again in Isaiah 19:21, the word of the Lord prophesies that Egypt will in that day, quote, vow a vow unto the Lord and shall perform it. That is, they'll do this as a nation. There'll be a national covenant, a national vow unto the Lord. Here again is a national covenant made with the Lord, which seems, again, to not be initiated by God, but initiated by the nation of Egypt. With God. Now finally notice that the national covenant between God and Egypt, which Egypt initiated, as we said, was the one who initiated it with God, is of the same essential nature and no less binding. If it is a lawful vow, it's no less binding and we take this to be a lawful vow that's made unto God in Isaiah chapter 19 by Egypt. It's no less binding than the national covenant between God and Israel, which God initially made with Israel at Mount Sinai. For observe the language that is used by God to refer to the result that we find here of Egypt becoming a covenanted nation with God in Isaiah 19, verses 24 and 25. Now, notice this language. Very interesting. 
verse 24, In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria. It would appear that these three nations are going to be, as it were, equal parts of some kind of a whole within the land. Equal parts within the land. Even a blessing in the midst of the land. <coughs> it doesn't seem to be, again, that, that there's a different relationship here that God has with uh, Israel than the relationship that he has with, with Egypt or with Assyria. In fact, in the next verse, notice what is said. Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Now, where have we heard that, word, that phrase before? My people. Isn't that the very thing that God says to Israel in Exodus and in Deuteronomy and throughout the Old Testament because they are his covenanted people? He calls them my people. The covenant was established nationally that the nation would be his people and that he would be their God. But he initiated that covenant. And yet, in this particular verse, in Isaiah 19.25, a covenant that Egypt initiates with God, God owns that covenant and calls Egypt my people, just as he calls Israel my people. Therefore, dear ones, the, the matter of who initiates a national covenant, whether God or the nation, does not alter the nature, substance, or perpetual obligation of that covenant. And again, that simply is to say that the solemn league and covenant, because God did not speak from heaven and initiate the covenant with England, Ireland, and Scotland, as he did with Israel at Mount Sinai, does not make that covenant any less binding. Does not alter or make it of a different nature, of a different essence, than the covenant, the national covenant at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai's covenant certainly is the prototype, but it is not of an entirely different essence or, or nature, simply because God initiated it, because England, Ireland, and Scotland became God's people. There were the same parties involved, whether it was God who initiated the covenant with Israel, or whether it was the nations that in, uh, initiated the covenant in the Solemn League and Covenant with God, the same parties are involved. It's God and man. It doesn't matter who initiated the covenant that makes it in some way more or less binding. They are equally binding. They're, they have the same perpetual obligation that pertains to posterity. As we've noted, God even owns national covenants with heathen kings and nations to be his covenant. And We've noted that, and again, with the covenant that Zedekiah made with 
Nebuchadnezzar in Ezekiel 17. We've noted that with regard to the covenant Israel made with the Gibeonites in Joshua 9. We've noted that in the covenant which uh, Solomon made with Hiram, Israel made with Tyre in Amos 1.9. That covenants, that even covenants that are not made with God, had a perpetual obligation upon posterity. How much more so than covenants that are made directly with God. Beloved, as we conclude today, we must not, we must not, God grant us repentance and forgiveness if we do, but we must not look for ways to avoid covenant obligations and duties to the Lord our God by trying to excuse ourselves by way of such foolishness, such sophistry, by way of such vain reasoning. Whether God initiates a covenant with man or whether man initiates a covenant with God, as I said earlier, the same two parties are in covenant one with the other. God will certainly keep his promise to be the God of the nation that covenants with him, whether he initiates it himself or whether the nation initiates it with God. The covenanted nation must therefore keep its covenant with God to be his people. If he covenants to be their God, they must covenant to be his people, whether he initiated the covenant or whether the nation initiated the covenant with God. And I am so very, very thankful that God will indeed own all such national covenants that a, that a nation initiates with God. For otherwise, no nation ex except Israel could be God's people in covenant with him. What an amazing set of headlines will be in those future newspapers, heard over radio stations throughout the world, seen over televisions and, and computers, when not only Israel will covenant anew to be God's people through the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ, but the nations, Egypt, will covenant to be God's people and the nations of this world will covenant to be God's people and God to be their God. They will follow suit as with Israel, doing so by the power of God's wondrous grace. And as just a concluding thought here, if God is then able, if God is then able to subdue Israel, who hates Jesus Christ, and God is able, dear ones, to subdue Israel and all the nations, and all the nations indeed hate Jesus Christ as well. They will not kiss the Son. They will not bow before him. They will not humble themselves before him, even our own nation, but in effect spit upon Christ and his holy commandments. If he will subdue all of these nations unto himself, is he not able to subdue you to himself? 
Is he not able to subdue your fears? Is he not able to subdue your worries and your anxieties? Is he not able to subdue the lusts of your flesh? Is he not able to subdue your pride, your foolishness, those besetting sins? Is he not able to subdue those loved ones for whom you are praying and have prayed for many years unto himself. This brings us hope, the fact that God will subdue the nations unto himself and they will covenant with him. That the Lord is able and so graciously and wondrously and powerfully does subdue even the most hardened, even those who, are, who seem to be the furthest away from him. Who, who give off the air that they would never want to have anything to do with God, do not lose hope. If he's going to subdue the nations, do not lose hope. He can. He has the power. He certainly has the ability to subdue even those loved ones unto himself. Where is your faith? Is your faith in their hardness? Is your faith looking more at their callousness? Are you saying about the world in which we live, I can't believe, and this is so often the case by different millennial perspectives, but in our perspective of post-millennialism, we believe God will subdue Israel and the nations unto himself. And there will be national covenants throughout the world. But the pessimist, the one who is not looking in faith at the promises of God, must conclude, how could this ever be? Look at how far we are from the Lord. How could this ever be? But dear ones, with God all things are possible. Let us look uh, to the Lord himself who is able to subdue all things to himself to the glory of God the Father. Let us stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy wondrous power, Thy mercy and grace that has subdued us, taken us captive by Thy grace, and led us, O Lord, to the throne of grace, bestowed upon us even the, uh, the ring of son sonship. Given to us, Lord, everlasting life. Granted to us, our God, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through Christ our Savior. Father, we, we humble ourselves before Thee and ask that Thou would forgive us for our unbelief. We confess, Lord, with that Father who had the, the Son who was possessed by a demon when the Lord Jesus asked if you believe, the Father cried out, I believe, but help thou mine unbelief. And likewise, we cry out, Lord, we believe, help thou our unbelief, heal us of our unbelief. May we, Lord, behold thee in all thy power and thy glory, which is able to subdue us unto thyself and to subdue 
the nations unto thyself and all things unto thyself. We pray, Father, that we would not run around <clears throat> worried, filled with anxiety, but Lord, let us rest in thy wisdom and thy power and thy tender mercies to us for whom Jesus Christ did suffer and die and fulfill all righteousness. We pray, our Lord and our God, that Thou would, would uh, bind up our hearts today and uh, that Thou would send us to our Savior for, for healing with all of the matters that do beset us, that we would not carry these burdens with us throughout the day, throughout the week, but, Lord, that we would know the freedom of the children of God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.